So I just want to have a really quick conversation with just the podcast listeners, the YouTube channel where you can actually see me and Pete in his apartment doing this interview. Um, they're, they're not going to hear this. This is just for the people that pick it up on audio. Thanks for coming along for this journey. Uh, this conversation that I'm about to have is with a man named Pete Scotes, and he is a, a wonderful human being. And um, it is with a great deal of humility that I put forward a podcast with Pete because um, he is so impactful and he has made such a big difference to me that I wanted other people to be able to see it. And I know how difficult it is to take wisdom and to distill it into bite-sized things for the internet, you know, recording a podcast. It's hard to replicate the mentor-mentee conversation and make it one that would be interesting for other people. But I, I tried to stop and ask myself, what are the questions that I don't think to ask Pete because it's a little intimidating to ask or that I know what his answers are. I, I, I know that there's some insight there. I maybe don't know how he got all of that insight, but I, kn I know what's down there. And so I tried to have a conversation where I included listener questions. So many of you saw either on Facebook or on Twitter after I asked about, hey, who has questions for my 99-year-old mentor about looking back on his last 100 years? And people had great questions. And so essentially, I sat down and asked him a lot of those questions and tried to make it into a conversation that people could enjoy, but would still be that high context conversation that I have with my mentor. So if we make references that you don't quite understand, I hope you stay with us. I, I tried to make it as um, open and nonspecific as possible, but sometimes it's going to happen that way. But as you're beginning this podcast, I, I want you to know that Pete... Um, didn't need to credential himself during the conversation. We just started talking, but he started out as an orphan, worked his way up in, um, in his boarding school, essentially, to um, joining the military and becoming an officer and then becoming a celebrated war hero. Uh, there, there are literally parades that have happened in Amsterdam because he uh, rescued the leader of the Dutch resistance. And um, Pete is a beloved businessman. I, I've seen letters of people writing to him saying one of the saddest days of their lives was when they realized he was leaving Milwaukee because he had made such a big impact on it. And um, Pete is adored by people young and old today. When I go out to New York, I am often having to schedule in between many, many other people that travel from all over the United States, really even all over the world, to come see Pete. So imagine the experience of being a man that is 99, almost 100 years old, and he brings so much excitement and joy into the world that people fall all over themselves to get out and go see him. And uh, usually it's to have an afternoon lunch or maybe just spend some time sitting around his table talking. It is in his uh, Manhattan apartment. It overlooks the UN and Trump Tower. And so it is a beautiful place. And we sit there and have conversations. And people from artists that are young and old, musicians. I mean, just for one example, you know, you can go in Pete's house and, and uh, you can see that he has photographs with him and Botero who is, uh, for a lot of people in St. Louis, he's the artist that made the sculpture of the really fat man or woman riding a horse. 
um, down in Clayton, St. Louis. It's a famous sculpture and it's, it's a really bizarre one, but Pete was on the edge of culture. He knew artists. He uh, is famous for having given Ansel Adams one of the first um, awards for doing traveling photography. So paying, using company money to be able to support the arts and part of those arts supported Ansel Adams, which if you think about how forward thinking you'd have to be at that time to have been one of the first people to have found Ansel Adams. That's a, that, that means you're doing something. And as the CEO of the largest textile manufacturing company in the world, he uh, made them incredibly profitable and went on to do many, many other things. He's in fashion. He's the chairman emeritus of FIT in New York City. He is just extraordinary in every single way that you can imagine. He was a devoted husband that has taught me so much about what it is to love a woman, um, what it is to care in a family, um, what the different roles are, and how there are times when a child has to uh, leave behind what their parents think and go on their own. And so I am so, so proud to be able to share this conversation with you guys. And it really all comes down to... Um, uh, some really generous support from St. Louis Bank. And um, I'm, I'm proud to say that Travis, the president of St. Louis Bank, has actually met Pete before he became president, before the, the deal was officially signed and the money was uh, spent to uh, purchase the shares in the company. Travis uh, went out to New York, New York with me and um, we sat down with Pete for two days and talked all about business and about how to structure and how to be a manager and uh, how to handle challenging situations and how to make sure you were making the right decision. And so Travis knows how valuable time with Pete is. And uh, Travis is the at the helm of St. Louis Bank, which has generously supported me um, and this podcast. And so I just want to say thank you to those guys because the ability to grab that with three cameras to do a pretty good job with the audio. I think I made a minor mistake, but I'm. Um, but in any case, it, it really sounds great, and it is all because uh, they believe in what I'm doing, in the value of capturing good conversations, and uh, they were excited to share it with you. So, if you are the type of person that's building something in St. Louis. And you want to find uh, other people that are in the business world that um, find value in people like Pete, and you will hear how valuable Pete is, then, um, you know, I, I would say try and contact St. Louis Bank. Those are the people that are thinking the way that Pete thinks about things. And, and I think they'd be proud of uh, being associated with Pete because I know he's proud of what Travis has done um, for the community of St. Louis by keeping that bank going. So I'm going to sign off for now. Join the podcast. I'm going to go straight into an introduction and then we'll head into there. Thank you so much. And uh, I will see you on Friday for another episode of As the Crow Flies. Yeah, I was a pretty bad boy. <laughs> I went over the wall for 10 days. I was caught smoking in the shower room. I punched a counselor. Uh, oh, I uh, also went in the new chapel while it was being built and went up in the rafters, threw a crowbar at a watchman. Uh, and so they exit, were going to exit me. My mother came in and pleaded with them to keep me, give me another chance. And this teacher, Dr. James Day White, White said, I'm taking Peter. I think he has a lot of good quality. 
I'll take responsibility for him from here on out if you'll give him another chance. This is the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today we are with my mentor and longtime friend, 99-year-old Pete Scotese. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So I put out on Twitter and Facebook that you and I were going to sit down and talk. My mentor that helped me learn how to be a professional in the world and how to be a man of integrity. And I asked, what questions would you have for a person that's turning 100 years old this year? And I got a whole bunch of questions, but I thought maybe a good one to start on is actually something that you and I have talked about several times, and it's really pretty personal, but it's something that everybody faces which is, what do you think happens when you die? I've thought about it a great deal. It's a damn good question. And it's in a lot of people's minds. It's hard to answer. I don't really have A, point, a strong point of view about it. We do have a universe. I do feel that there's a a greater force in the universe, whether the force is religious or or whatever, and it's kind of been puzzling to me uh, as to what might happen in the Catholic Church, of course. I grew up with the notion that you either went to hell, purgatory, or heaven. I've kind of outgrown, I wouldn't say outgrown, but I find that difficult to absorb at this stage of my life. And while I've allowed myself to dwell on the answer to your question, when I read from Einstein's book, my, Out of My Later Years, and figure out that he hasn't figured it out yet, I don't waste a hell of a lot of time. <laughs> I figured if he couldn't figure it out, it's probably not going to be difficult to me. And I think it's one of the things that I, as I look forward to my own demise, I, I'm concerned that there's a probability that I will never again be in contact with friends, family, relatives that I've gotten to know over a lifetime. And that uh, being cremated, uh, I just wonder if I go into I, I would say that maybe the Buddhism philosophy of nothingness is the is, is what I'll be in nothingness, but nothingness can be ecstasy. And so I kind of semi-rationalize my feeling as being uh, one where I go into a nothingness, which would be equivalent to 
you're going to bed at night, getting into a deep sleep and not waking up. I've had the experience of, 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 uh, of the, tun the tunnel of light, which has been written up and where people feel themselves going down a light tunnel when they're dying and into this magnificent resplendent room and get a very ecstatic feeling and then the lights go out. And I thought I was unique in having that experience, but I talked to someone who interprets dreams. They put me online. I found out a lot of people have that vision of a tunnel of light. When did that happen? What was going on? That happened about 10 years ago. Interestingly, the director of spiritual welfare at Marquette, Father John Naus, who was a Jesuit priest, was uh, a house guest of mine when that happened. Oh, really? Uh, but I thought nothing of it. I never even talked to him about it. I just thought, gee, that was a funny dream. So I, I, I've walked all around your question, and I haven't given you an answer, except that I think it, I'm not capable of giving you an answer. I'm only capable of giving you my feeling. You know, you said that you talked about your friendships and all of your family that you would want to see again. Yeah. Friendship and family is maybe the biggest part of your life now. Yeah. What do you think you've learned or what has changed about the way you've thought about friendship now that you're 99 as yeah. opposed to when you were, say, my age at 38? Yeah, I, I think as I got older in my later years, since friends are family you choose, I found that my friendships were every bit as strong emotionally and otherwise, with friends as they were and are with family. So friends became a vital part of my existence uh, for that reason. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I, in, in my case, I thought about friends in categories. And one way I would categorize a friend would be in my own mind if I were committed to a destination for eternity and I could take my family my immediate family and five friends with me for the rest of time who would I take among my friends. And it was a way of kind of sorting out who might be the most important. And it couldn't be a, someone who was demise. And I often, and, and I, I thought, well, you know, I, I would hate to limit it to five because when I look back on life, I have a whole trial, a whole trail of people who I were friends, mentors, and uh, who I would not wish to give up if I had any choice at all. Did you notice any patterns emerge about the type of people you considered for those five? 
They were always people who um, had leadership qualities. Where I learned um, where they had aside to them, experience-wise and otherwise, which was different from mine, so that I would, could learn a great deal from them. Uh, and where their interests were broad, not narrow and deep, so that we could talk on a broad range of subjects when we were talking, both personal, whether it was in the field of art or business or, or whatever. So there are people with very broad ranging interests and not, not narrow and deep in how they lived and thought. Uh, Much of what I learned about friendship as an adult came from you and I speaking a lot about various problems that I would have or right. uh, challenges that you face along the way. Mm -hmm. what, what changed with you over time with with the friendships that you were able to cultivate as an older person as opposed to when you were a young person? The question is, I mean, what's you, you the have, difference? Yeah, I mean, you have uh, still yeah. many, many friendships, <clears throat> but they're yeah. different now in some way. I find in my older friendships, I was more on the tutoring, giving end, and not the recipient as much as it was in the earlier friendships. So it was, I was kind of moving from mentoree to mentor, mm -hmm. uh, but assembling, collecting friends in the same way, but with a different, not a different purpose, but with different conversations, different discussion, different uh, outputs and inputs. Ever since I've known you, we have, you have surrounded yourself with many, many young people. I was around, but there were many other, yeah. uh, and a lot of them, beautiful young women and yeah. uh, people excited about life and in, into the arts. I think you are living the dream of an older person. Mm -hmm. How did you continue to be able to find and cultivate relationships with young people as you got older and older? Most old people, older people don't, don't have yeah. those relationships. Well, interestingly, uh, many of the people you're talking about, the younger, were members of second, third, and even fourth generation uh, of people that my wife and I, my wife of 75 years, and I knew way back, way, way back. And after Millie died, the children of the people that Millie and I knew chose to stay in touch with me. And then the children's children did it and beyond that, what, as we grew and developed our, our relationship, they seemed to come to me for advice and counsel, but they also would suggest to their friends that, hey, you got a problem, you may want to talk to Pete about it. <laughs> I do that. So I think the, uh, 
I was fortunate enough to uh, to become kind of a uh, a mentor to a lot of people who were close to me, but who had friends that were close to them, and they felt my benefit from these kinds of discussion. And I've enjoyed doing that. And it's more importantly, I guess it's it's I've benefited from the fact that many of them are so much younger that I'm learning a lot about, I am learning a lot about the younger generation and the way they act and behave and think and feel, emotion and otherwise. There are two qualities that you have that I think make you a person that people are drawn to that, for many reasons, you have a lot of wisdom, but there's two things I think in particular. The first one is you have almost no judgment of people. Like if they're doing something that is not um, without integrity, you don't have time for that. But when people have a completely different way of living their life, yeah, you're very open to that. And the other thing that you do that I find extraordinary is if I were to say, hey, we're thinking about coming to visit you, you always say, okay, get out your calendar, get yeah. your pencil out. You never wait to get things scheduled. That seems right. to me to be one of the things that was really important mm -hmm. to you having all these relationships is you didn't put off scheduling. Do you That's a good that? point. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it, but I think if you're sincere about people visiting or whatever, you should say, all right, let's do it. Let's put it on a calendar. Let's make it happen. Yeah, and I think most people... And not just lead people on. Right. Do you ever tell people you don't want to see them? I mean, like, because my experience with you is... No, I'll say I can't see you then, but let's make a, another date within the next day or two or now. Because I think by indicating, by not doing that, you're indicating that they're... that you're not anxious to proceed and have a relationship or, or to see them. To prioritize it, yeah. Yeah. So I, I that's, that's a good point you made. I think if you want to be sincere with people, uh, and they, then you've got to be uh, very positive about those kinds of reactions. Yes, I do want to see you. Yes, let's make the date. So you're indicating to them by that alone, that, yep. hey, you're, you, you're important to this guy or to this girl or to this. Yeah, my natural reaction is to procrastinate putting something down on the calendar. But mm -hmm. since I've made the observation that that's one of the ways that you've kept so many good relationships, well, it's really yeah. made a big difference to me. Yeah. When, uh, when I look around at the world right now, it seems crazy, right? Mm -hmm. We're right across from Trump Tower over there, right. and we know that the UN and the US have all these problems. Mm -hmm. It seems hyper chaotic, mm -hmm. but that may just be because it's the present day and it always feels chaotic. With a hundred years of time, do you feel like now is a particularly chaotic <clears throat> or dangerous time or is this just the cycle of life? Uh, I'm not sure it's more chaotic, but I'm double damn sure that, it's, that we're being more informed about the chaos. Oh, and I think the difference was in the early days, 50, 100 years, we did not have 
the means of instant communication that we now have. We didn't have the tools of relating that we now have, and more importantly, that we have on the horizon. Whether it's A1 or, or cloud computing or 3D printing or whatever. And I think you've struck on another vital point, and that is uh, the speed with which information technology is changing our coming on stream, eh, and changing the lives of everyone on the planet. A huge uh, tsunami of information uh, and information gathering and information cascading that people are going to have to sort through. It seems That's, like it was the automatic, it seemed like everybody believed, hey, when the internet comes and we can all be connected with one another, right. that it will by just default be good, right? It will all be positive. Right. And we did not predict, at least when I was in first grade or you know, sixth grade, when people were talking about the internet, nobody said, well, one of the consequences that's going to come is you're going to know and be outraged about things that are so far away from you. And yet that be, that will become a part of your life because you're so interconnected with uh, information. Yeah, among other things. Among other things. And the, and the other thing is what the internet can promote that's, uh, like I think, the, New York Times devoted one or two pages to the promotion of child pornography because of the internet. Right. And their ability to reach, the predator's ability to reach uh, children directly. Mm -hmm. So it's, the internet's creating, a, as I said earlier, a tsunami of problems as well as opportunities. It's interesting that so many young people come to you to ask for advice, whether they're jazz musicians or artists or right. students or business, because you're not a part of the day-to-day -day hustle of, of uh, 3D printing yeah, and virtual means, reality yeah. and these things. Why do you think people are so drawn to mentors that have such long time? I, because history? I think they're looking for an anchor that's, that, that's not emotion, uh, emotionally uh, that, that, that drive not their emotions, but but their logic. They're looking for more things that are uh, more constant in their lives. And I, I think they find that I'm living and have lived a life that I've enjoyed thoroughly, left large footprints, and that they have that kind of a life to look forward to also if they navigate properly through this labyrinth of information technology that's, that's creating so much in the, in the way of uncertainties at every level of everything they do. So it's comforting for them to talk to someone who in this climate of uncertainty can offer basic advice and also allay some of the fears they have about um, their own futures, about jobs, 
about their passion or about what they want to do 10 years from now, five years from now, about their employment and the, what they like about it or don't like about it. Uh, so I, I represent the past with an understanding of the future. Yeah, I think that's absolutely probably. right. Yeah, you've probably had to hear the same yeah. questions and concerns from exactly. all the young people that walk in here. And I think their parents, in many cases, do not do that. Their parents try to, particularly with millennials, I find that the parents often will try to, I won't call it manipulate, but will try to guide their children through channels that, that they're comfortable, they, the parents, are comfortable with because it works for them. And I often counsel with parents about the fact that their children have grown up in a totally different environment and that they should give them slack, as my, grand, my son said, in coming to their own conclusion uh, over time. I think that's probably the single biggest rift between teenagers and parents, particularly among the younger generation. Where yeah, they, even people in their 20s. I mean, that, oh, that's yeah. where it really oh, comes yeah. to a head now. Yeah, right on up. What did you find difficult about being a, a mentor? I mean, like, you, you have to watch people navigate and go through. I mean, there are times in my life where you were watching me have no idea what I was going to do. Yeah, well, you say, what, what was your what question? What is difficult about being a mentor? No, nothing, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's great. Uh, I mean, I don't fret about it. Uh, I don't, I think I'm comfortable in the advice I give because I never give, uh, I never suggested this is what you should do. That's right. I think my advice is always based on my own life. Here are some alternatives in, where in the set of circumstances you just described might work for you. Think about them. But think about others that might come up while you do that. So I never say, I think what you should do is this. And parents have a tendency to say, here's what you should do. Yeah, you can't resist. And I, say, I think uh, so. what I offer most is a potpourri of recommendations that they can choose from that work for me that might lead them to use one of them or may give them an idea for, uh, for, for another approach to the who was, who was a pivotal mentor to you as you were growing up? Well, I, had, uh, I, I was very fortunate. Um, because I didn't have a father, my father died shortly after I was born. I was, went to an orphanage where for nine years and we had excellent teachers. And some of them stayed in my memory and were mentors long after I left the institution. Uh, one was a, a teacher named Dr. James White, who influenced my life when I was in there. As a matter of fact, saved me from getting kicked out of the institution and became a friend for the wait, rest wait, of... saved you from getting kicked out? What did you do? Well, I, I was a pretty bad boy. <laughs> I went over the wall for 10 days. I was caught smoking in the shower room. I punched a counselor. Uh, oh, I... Uh, also went in the new chapel while it was being built and went up in the rafters 
through a crowbar or a watchman. Uh, and so they exit, were going to exit me. My mother came in and pleaded with them to keep me, give me another chance. And this teacher, Dr. James Day White, White said, I'm taking Peter. I think he has a lot of good quality. I'll take responsibility for him from here on out if you'll give him another chance. At that point, I had two very objectionables and three unsatisfactory, which meant out you go. What I never knew until after I graduated was that when I was put into Girard College, first grade, that my mother had to sign an indenture paper, the same as slave. I was indentured to that college. She could not in interfere with my life or they would kick me out. Wow. I had to, I had to live under their structure, their methodology. Best thing ever happened. I could still see her and do all the other things, but they, she could not interfere with what they did and how they did it. What ultimately got you to straighten up? Because if, there's a sword in there of you being the drill instructor for the whole. Yeah, group. well, as I, as I, after I repented, and I went, uh, turned around, became a good boy. <laughs> I became captain of my battalion. I became. Uh, uh, a member of the National Honor Society, became head of the yearbook, captain of the gym team. So I did convert uh, rather rapidly to doing things that were more constructive. What do you think was driving you to be the type of person that was getting in trouble in the first place? Adventure. Just, I wouldn't use the expression, but it was adventuresome. Matter of fact, when I went over the wall, I was over for 10 days and finally got so hungry, got tired of stealing bread from uh, the storefront and was getting hungry. I flagged the police car and asked them to take me back home, take me to Gerard. And they said, why'd you come back? I said, because I'm hungry. They said, I got news for you. There's a uh, epidemic of, of uh, to help. Then what, there was an epidemic and you're going to have to be quarantined for 48 hours and you can't eat anything. And so after you were hungry enough to come home, they told you you had to go two more days without eating? I, I could not get anything to eat for two, <laughs> because I was quarantined to make sure I didn't have the disease. Wow. Because it was transferable. Polio. There was a polio epidemic. Wow. Polio was deadly then. And how common was it for people to, did you know people that got polio? I knew that I knew, I knew that we had polio out there. Yeah, and uh, but it's just an aside. The fact that I fooled myself because it didn't. What I never, were you doing for those ten days that you had gone over the wall? Not much. Where'd you just sleep kept, at night? I slept in the field. I had another guy with me, but I had been um, standing up. Um, in a corner for punishment in one of the counselor's rooms. Uh, he went to bed, went to sleep, and he shoved a, hair, a, a dresser against the wall, but I opened the window and got out through the window while he was sleeping. So I escaped from that punishment, went over the wall. Uh, <laughs> and, and, 
And then you went on and, and uh, joined the military. Went in the military, yes, I was always adventuresome. That's why I, I transferred, when I was transferred from anti-aircraft artillery to, to uh, uh, to infantry, I volunteered for parachute infantry because it it was adventuresome, more adventurous than foot infantry, and I got paid a hundred bucks a month extra. That was a big deal during the depression. Yeah, hundred dollars a month on top of my officer's pay. When you look back on the span of time, are there things that you regret not doing? Were there adventures you didn't go on that you wish you had gone on? The only thing I've thought about was that if I had my life to live over, I would live in another country, another civil culture, yeah, for at least a year. I think it's vital that you we don't think that America democracy is the only form of and and, and even though I traveled a great deal. It was never as though I had to live there among the population and understand their religion, understand their everything about them and realize that they are, because they're not a democracy, that they're still a damn good way of life. And, so, and, I, and I think our foreign relations suffer from the fact that in my memory, only George only Bush Sr. ever lived overseas. Really? He lived for one year when he was in the CIA. <laughs> and that's a different kind of living yeah. overseas. So we, we, never, we don't have presidents that understand foreign policy because they haven't lived in another culture. I was stunned when I went to China in the 1970s and saw how primitive but on the move, China was. Uh, Why did you go in the 1970s? You were one of the first people to go. I was able because we had invited their textile group, Chinese textile group, to come and visit our mills. I was the head of Springs Industries then. And during that visit, they said, have you ever been to China? I said, no, would you like to go? Yes. This was in May or June. They said, you'll hear from us. In September, that by the way, we did not have uh, embassy. They had uh, we had a representative from China in uh, on the ground here. But I got a note that they would receive me in uh, Beijing in September, so and so and so and so. And I had to go by way of Hong Kong, so I took Millie and a couple of people from our company. Flew to Hong Kong, overflew, flew around Korea, landed in Beijing, and were hosted by the Japanese textile department for 10 days. So I was lucky. But I was stunned by the diff by how what what how different China was to the US. What sticks out to you most about what you saw? What how manpower? can produce, sheer manpower can produce as much as machine power because of its numbers. There were a million bicycles on the streets of Beijing. 
scaffolding was built by hand of bamboo. And they tied it at every corner. But it was going up, up, up inevitably. But the sheer weight of people at, at work uh, was what drove that, that economy. So you went from being an orphan all the way up to being the CEO of the largest textile manufacturing company in the world, rags to riches. Yeah. Do you think that that is still possible in today's America? That's a good question. By the way, it wasn't rags to riches because the textile industry didn't pay that well. And they were, and, and that's, they did not give their chief executives the, the huge sums that they get today, hundreds of millions. Right. 50 million. That was unthinkable in those days. And we managed, I would say, from the bottom up. We made sure our entry level employees were happy. We fed them well. We, we, they ate from, they used glassware and china and hot food. And yeah, that's worth it to talk about. They, they were factory workers that came in and had like real China to yeah. eat on as opposed to just so, like some And even though we didn't pay a lot entry level, we gave them secure jobs. We had company stores where they could buy goods wholesale. We had clinics where they go for their health. So uh, it wasn't, I liked the idea that we were oriented to our employees, but it started at the bottom, made sure that people at the bottom were well taken care of them. Well. And we put limits on what people like myself, a CEO, could get in terms of salary. And if I got salaries and bonuses, all the people below me had to get, were moved up. So you, you had to think about that. Uh, Oh, so if you increased yourself, you, you had, had to increase everybody, everybody else. else. Yeah, you couldn't had. just take your percentage. That's right. They had to be within, they couldn't be, I couldn't be more than 10% above the next level. Well, that does not happen now. No. Oh, God, no. They pay them. It, it's egregious what's happening now. You think so? You think that they're paying oh, too they're, much? Oh, they're paying much too much for CEOs. They're paying... And, and that's why there's a more and more spread between middle class and <laughs> the rich are getting richer and the other. I mean, I think there's there's been a, a mishandling of uh, human resources in that connection where there's too much emphasis on compensation at the top and not enough emphasis on, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, you know, the, everybody else. Do you think that will ever change? Or do you do you think this is the new normal forever, that CEOs will make 30, 40, I don't 50 think times? we can predict. I think it's awful hard to disengage from that kind of egregious payment. Now, I realize that people in many companies are entitled to whatever, you know, uh, they're employing a lot of people and they're helping the economy. But th this is happening across the board where more and more top executives are, are being overcompensated. Well, you wrote about that even in, in yeah. uh, I, I read about it in a book yeah. that you, what, where did you write about that? Was it Harvard Business Review? I wrote, no, yeah, I wrote it for the Harvard Business Review about Golden Parachute. 
where if your company got bought out, uh, you got a golden, you got a huge bonus. So they were saying, in effect, run your company into the ground, somebody will buy it, and then you you have a golden parachute, and we'll pay you off to leave, like your company. I was going to ask you about what do you think about oh the money being you're, oh my bear. god I think the the package they gave him was incredible, and I never saw enough publicity about that. Here's a company that's going to hell in a handbasket, drive down the stock price of the company that's acquiring them, and gets this how, how much was the bonus? Yeah, it was it was a lot. Yeah, by the time he walked away, hundred hundred million uh, or something. Yeah. That it was interesting because. Now that the deal has gone through and the roundup lawsuits happened, that Bear, their stock price is now worth less than the price they paid for Monsanto. That's crazy. They ought to fire the guy from Monsanto and the guy from Bear. And, and, uh, well, I mean, that's a whole nother subject. <laughs> so when, when you think about the, compensation that a C-level person gets, they're they're running multi-billion dollar companies. Mm -hmm. What should they be paid if it's not as much as they're getting paid now? Well, I, th I think when you look at compensation, you look at it in terms of total compensation. The way to look at total compensation is if that person were to leave the company, what expenses would drop out? You have corporate jets, you have uh, health care, you have pension, you have uh, uh, profit sharing, you have uh, uh, sp special incentives over uh, programs and sent over a four or five year program. You have the use of the corporate jet. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the package, uh, the whole pay package, it's, it's substantial. Yeah, and I think most people that have not worked inside of a large corporation, yeah. they don't even know that there are stock options and there's all sorts oh, of yeah, stock, yeah. dividends the, the that you get paid stock out, right? And I'm sure that as you move up in a corporation, it yeah. gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I'll tell you, uh, the best response I can give you is, I looked at a general, I'm gonna say a either a General Electric or a American Express annual report once, 17 pages of the annual report were devoted to executive compensation. 17 of 85 pages. That's how complicated. Yeah. Come on, you know. You could, I could explain my compensation in one paragraph <laughs> at, 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 at Springs. I was perfectly content with it. What sort of a CEO were you? What did you care about? What made you stand out? Results. The bottom line is, what did you do for the company? When I went there, it was doing 250 million a year and losing money. When I left, it was doing almost a billion a year, had 30 million in cash in the bank, and was making money, a lot of money. What were the things that you did to make it so successful? Closed, looked over all the assets we owned 
And so what those assets were returning, and I closed down plants in Indonesia. I closed down a textile plant in Indonesia. I closed down a, wrote it down to a dollar, closed down the a carpet plant in Georgia, closed down a plant we had just built in North Carolina for kitchen cotton, and closed down a plant in uh, oh, a, a double-knit uh, plant in Monroe, uh, North Carolina. So I closed and then I took the uh, over-the-counter piece goods, uh, top of the bed and bath products, and apparel fabrics, which were flourishing, put the money from the closed plants into those businesses that were doing well and making money and expanded those. And also got a foreign presence. Start farm stuff out, to, to, and where uh, we got, we decided we would oversell and buy excess production from. Uh, instead of building excess production, we would buy excess production from from other people. From other expand. factories, from other yeah. companies. Yeah. And when you're making these big decisions, I mean, shutting down They're a factory huge. that changes. Yeah. Lots no, of I, lives. I had trouble with. Uh, you know, they looked at me like I had three heads. And in one case, you know, the boss who had been there for a long time said, uh, we're not gonna do it. And I said, look, you're... well, I, I sh shouldn't say this publicly, but I just said that uh, we can't waste the family's assets. We just, we have to do it. And we now, did it. You hit these moments in your life where you're doing big things. How did you handle the, there's a question whether or not you're right, right? You're going to take an action, yeah. and it's going to be a little bit of time before you find yeah. out whether or not it's right or not. Yeah. How did you manage the stress of making those kinds of choices? Well, it's a good question, but I, um, I, I, I was comfortable in my own skin because I knew damn well that the decisions I had made were right and would produce the right result. <laughs> and within six months, I think, uh, you know, we, we things started to change around and then everybody else. By the way, I said, if you, if you stick with me and with these changes, I'll make all of you a little bit rich because their profit sharing and everything else would go up. And I did. During this time, when you were in the textiles, you started to um, get involved in the art scene or kind of cross between art yeah. and textiles. Describe that. What, what, what did you do there that was so unique? Well, we uh, sponsored uh, in we sp one of our plant locations, we sponsored uh, a Springs Art Show. That's from the Springs Art Show. And uh, once a year, we had an Art of the Carolinas exhibit where people, whether they were artists or not, could bring it, show it for a month. We would have a, a, a museum director look them over, pick first, second, third prizes, travel those around for a year exposing the artists. And uh, so Springs was engaged in the arts that way. And then we sponsored uh, with the Museum of Modern Art, photography now at the rate of 250,000 a year, promoting young photographers because we felt 
that photography was an incoming art form. We did that for 10 years. And it wasn't popular before you did that, photography? It was popular, but it was not an art form. It wasn't considered a real art form. Oh. Uh, it was popular because everybody had a camera. Everybody, the children, but it wasn't, it hadn't reached a level where it was it, an art form. Somebody, it was really an art for people pay a couple hundred thousand bucks for it as they would for an Ansel Adam. And uh, then we went to the museum to uh, uh, we went, went to the uh, Metropolitan Museum, signed a contract with them where we could access all of their textile fabrics all the way back to per the Persian collect, and we translated. A lot of that work, China for onto bed sheets, bedspreads, towels, and sold it as the Metropolitan Collection by Spring Made, and gave them five percent of the sale. We paid them two and a half million dollars in royalties over a period of three to five years. We did that with the Guggenheim in a smaller way. So our footprint in art was constant. How did you even start those conversations? Because this had to have been very different from what other people were doing. Or did other people, were other people doing this and you just got in on the No, we, we wanted to distinguish ourselves. I'd gotten a little bit of this. This is what I did in Milwaukee. When I was in Milwaukee, we had import fairs and supported the, you know, the museums. So I, I was... Um, I let art influence what we did because art and, and textiles, you know, styling, you know, be, I felt were connected. Yeah, we we would be better if we if we took an interest in art, and uh, because art art is universal. So you brought up Milwaukee. You ran a store called the Boston Store right. in Milwaukee, and it was a department store that was kind of a bargain yeah, store. Bargain basement brought them up into, how, tell me about that experience. Well, we were, uh, I'd never run a department store, I had sold the department stores, and I thought, how can I differentiate my stores? I said to your bride, how are you going to differentiate what she wants to do? So I had a survey taken of all the stores within three, uh, 30 miles, and what kind of goods they were selling. And I found out that they were selling uh, mostly what I would call basement and budget price lines. Now we were, this was J.C. Penney, Marshall Field, Gimbals, etc. So I came back to my group and I said, we're gonna get out of basement and budget price lines. We're going to go to moderate, upper, moderate, and high because we want to get away from and we want to offer people the better good. And as fast as we did that, our sales and profits went like that, even though we were the one-third the size of our major competitor. Really? We had Italian import fairs. We built an enclosed mall shopping center, the first in this state of Wisconsin. Meaning that it used to be in Wisconsin when they would go shopping, they had to be outside. And now all of their shopping, the walking well, I mean, between the, stores. The, on the branch, in the branches. Right. You could go to our new branch there and stay inside and all day long. Um, so we rejuggled, we 
rejuggled our uh, outlying stores and rebuilt the downtown store with a whole new parking garage with ease of access and which uh, and, and we uh, had a bridge that connected the garage to the store so they didn't have to when they left their car and parked it they could walk across the bridge into the store and you used to sell sourdough bread up there on those bridges right oh, what didn't you sell sourdough bread or from oh Saint you know in the on the uh, in the uh, tunnel that we i mean the the bridge the, the bridge that we built we decided to sell food stuffs, exotic food stuffs, including sourdough that we flew in from san francisco and spices and stuff like that so that they could have a shopping experience going in and a shopping experience going out and they could lower the price that they paid for parking by buying goods and showing us the parking stuff <laughs> on the way out. So we use a lot of innovative. Uh, you had so many ideas that did well between, you know, the Boston store. Right. And did you ever have an idea that you went big on that didn't go well? I was always in situations that needed fixing. So I, the, the answer to your question is no, because they were they needed fixing and I fixed them. That's a great answer. Yeah, That's I really, really was never happy in a situation where everything was going smoothly. I liked running things that had problems. I, and I think that's, you know, there's a phrase. And maybe that that's the same way I am. with people. With, with people. I, uh, I enjoy people with problems. fixing. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you know the thing that I didn't realize where I got it from, but when people ask me about you know job advice or what should I right. do for a career, I always talk about find a problem that you're really good at solving, yeah. and then go solve that problem because that's yeah. how you create value in the world. Yeah, but I probably got that from you. You know, I, I would be bored. Matter of fact, that's why I kept changing. Jobs. As soon as I got on top of something and it started to get airborne and a little bit redundant, I'm looking for another challenge somewhere else. But I was on ten boards of directors in for-profit organization over a period of time. I was on God knows how many not-for-profits in Milwaukee and everywhere I went. You know, I was involved in not-for-profit activities. Still involved with three of them. And when you think about being on a board of directors, let's say for companies. Yeah. What what goes on inside of a boardroom that people that have never been in one wouldn't know about? If they're well run, the emphasis, the board, the contributions the board members make is to a make sure that they have the best possible chief executive officer, and secondly to make sure that the company has a solid uh, 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 budgeted plan that they're meeting currently and then to make sure that they have a long-range plan that makes sense. They're the three. They don't get down into the operation and say, you know, you ought to fix that factory floor. Or they stay above that. Make sure that the CEO has integrity Make sure that the the the, the uh, annual plan is being met and f fulfilled. Make sure you have a damn good long-range plan. That's what their role is. It's not to get down in the detail. 
changing the subject completely, but we have so many areas we could go into. But I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on war. On what? We, on war. Wars? I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on war. Yes, being at war, going to war. Because you were I'm violently opposed to war f for any reason except in self-defense. I'm violently opposed to killing other people for whatever reasons. I think that the going to war should not be an alternative to solving the problems of uh, uh, with other nations. That it should be diplomacy that solves it and not wars. Uh, I think it's terrible to, uh, you know, I remember, you know, when I killed my first person, still in my, up here, uh, I took somebody's life. I pulled out their, uh, I, I, we pulled out their identification to see if they had any stuff on them about, uh, uh, about the unit or whatever and see pictures of their wife, their children. They're human beings just like all the rest of us. And, uh, yeah, that's, I'm, I think you'd find so, most soldiers would be, agree with me. Last thing you want to do. But in Hitler's case, he wanted to take us over. You know, you're fighting for your life. But even then, too bad we couldn't handle it with diplomacy. I have two final questions. Mm -hmm. The first one is, if 99-year-old Pete could go back and talk to 30-something-year-old Pete, right? You're mm -hmm. somewhere along in your career, mm -hmm. but definitely not at the height. What advice would you give 38-year-old Pete or 35-year-old Pete? If you were well, I would say... I was thinking about this with you with exercise. When I was growing up in this orphanage, they had signs in the classrooms for nine years. Moderation in everything. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. And the other one was cooperation makes group life possible. I thought two of those three were things you could live with all your life and, 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 and heed well. Yeah. So you cooperate with people to get them to do things. You don't kill them or you don't say, I'll kill you if you don't do it. You know. uh, and also you give in. Cooperation is a give and take. It's not the way I do it. I think I mentioned to you once when I what I learned from my Harvard Business School experience was there were 131 other people up there and they had 131 different opinions as to how to do something and every damn one of them were as smart as I was. And any, all 131 could work, but work in different ways. So be very respectful of other people's opinion. We're too damn, this is why I'm very cautious with youngsters in saying, what I'm giving you is an opinion. You know, I'm not suggesting that's what you should do. I'm just saying, here are, here's some opinion. And then my final question would be, you know, we started with talking about what is end yeah. of life, but there are a lot of people that 
want to carry on your legacy, want to see the things that they learned from you be moved forward, what could the people that you've been a mentor to do to keep your legacy going? What, what would you like to see people doing after you're gone? Well, I almost go back to the Bible to treat, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Uh, uh, I think that to be very, very respectful of people you work with and, and particularly people who work for you. Um, I'd say managing from the bottom up is maybe try to imbue in them the importance of the guy running the elevator or the mail room or the, is just as important as the guy at the top. Uh, so treat everybody with the same degree of of respect and reverence. Uh, so it's love. Love Love is powerful. It's, great. it's bigger than war. Yeah, that's something I've seen you live yeah. for your whole life. Well, thank you so much yeah. for doing this.